Welcome to Soulful Insights, conversations exploring the synergy of psychology, emotion and spirit. I'm Ruth Caterellis, psychologist, writer and performer. And I'm Rebecca Harris, author, psychotherapist and educational consultant. These conversations are based on our studies, observations and personal experiences. Take what resonates, leave the rest. Welcome to Soulful Insights, conversations exploring the synergy of psychology, emotion and spirit. I'm Ruth Caterellis, psychologist, writer and performer. And I'm Rebecca Harris, author, psychotherapist and educational consultant. These conversations are based on our studies, observations and personal experiences. Take what resonates, leave the rest. Okay, so... Today, I would like to start by acknowledging that we are coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I would like to acknowledge Elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. And we're starting today by talking about emotions. It's a big topic. Quite, quite a big topic. So when we start talking about emotions, where does it take you? I guess for me, you know, and one of the reasons that this podcast is, has got emotions in the title is I think that it is probably one of the most important factors about being human. Mm-hmm. Animals have emotions. I think there's no question. But we are the only species, from what I understand, um, that is conscious of the emotions and can actually reflect on our feelings. And the significance of that in terms of our evolution is big. Mm. So that's yep. kind of where it takes me on a, in a broad way. Yeah, well, it is big and broad and something that unites us, but also something that our relationship to emotion is very individual, very influenced by our upbringing and also something that we can change and influence ourselves. I think that's the important part because... You're right, our upbringing, but also society. You know, we get messages from society about what emotions are okay, what we're supposed to feel, what we should be feeling, what we shouldn't be feeling. And even within the, the world of psychology and within spirituality, there are messages about, you know, the you used before when we were talking, you used the words bad and good. Mm. You know, what emotions are okay. And we spend a lot of our time, a lot of our lives moving through and navigating our emotional territory. And I think it is just so common to have that sense that there are positive and negative emotions and that, uh, you know, what's acceptable and what's not. And, you know, it's something that's also something that happens inside us, you know, sometimes when you feel certain feelings that aren't nice, you know, it makes makes me want to squirm away from them. Like we have a response to those emotions that don't feel good. It doesn't make the emotion itself negative or bad though, does it? It's still playing a a really important role. And I think that um, it's such a journey to be able to be with those emotions that uh, well, the word that I often use actually is tricky because, you know, I work with kids, but it works for all of us. Tricky emotions. Some emotions are really tricky. Mm, I think you're right. I think as humans, we have a natural inclination to move towards something that feels good. That's a really strong part of our motivation. But the thing about emotions, and I, I tend to use the words 
expansive and constrictive. And the thing about understanding our emotions is that if we understand them, we can move through those tricky emotions and work out why we're feeling them, what we're responding to, and find our passage through them because that's where the learning occurs. And the more self-understanding we have, the easier life is to navigate. And life's hard to navigate, but it's harder when you're trying to look at it through a fog of emotion with no idea what's where. And so separating the indoctrination, I think, to what is real for us individually becomes really important. Mm. And absolutely that that external influence about what's acceptable and what's an acceptable way to express emotion too. I'm reminded of... um, the concept of it's from ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, clean pain and dirty pain. And mm. clean pain is just the, the pain that you feel, the those tricky emotions, the difficult stuff that you feel. And then we so often layer a whole nother lot of pain over it, which is us trying to avoid that first lot of pain. And if totally. you can stop doing that, you've halved your pain. Absolutely. Which comes back to, I guess, that, again, indoctrination, because fundamentally we're taught that emotions are not good anyway. Yeah. You know, the superiority of the intellect, which is a, a patriarchal, you know, thing that came in, you know, so long ago. I mean, that's kind of the, in lots of ways around the Renaissance, you know, where the notion of philosophy and thought was a superior form of being, which means that we get that strong message that emotions per se are not good things. And it's interesting that love is one of the few things that we cannot... I'm thinking about the notion of um, science that says, I will not accept what I can't see, what I can't prove. Well, we can't prove love. We can see the evidence of it and we can see the evidence of the lack of it, but we can't see it. We can feel it. And it's the one thing that we all agree on that is not able to be pinned down, that we all accept as a given, the feeling of love. Mm. I'm not sure where I was going with that. <laughs> I started a thought and went somewhere else. Well, that's a whole other episode, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Love, totally. I think where I was going was being told that we are not supposed to feel except for the positive ones, so the negatives ones. And we get that message really strongly as a child. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're angry, that's not okay. It's not acceptable. Adults can be angry, but as a child you're supposed to be compliant, easy to manage And we hit at around the 18 months, two years, we hit that first point of uh, where I think we all universally experience a level of shame, which is another really tricky emotion. Prior to that, we experience our, generally our mother, I'm I'm generalising here, but our mothers or our most significant caregiver, we experience their emotions. But from that kind of demarcation point, we suddenly realise that we are separate and that's when we start to utilise a bit of power. We, you know, we can say no. Mm-hmm. We can go, I want to do that, don't want to do that, not eating that, want to eat that. But that's where shame comes in because we start to get the message that it's not okay to want something different to what is being wanted for us. Well, yeah, and so much of, um, I guess, historically, like children get controlled and managed and that, you know, that is still the term that gets used in schools all the time, behaviour management part of the job right managing children and I think for parents too you know there's a often in parenting there's a response to what you describe that early stage of children showing their own little bit of power 
here and there. And there's some really then strong messaging around emotion and what's acceptable and what's not in a lot of uh, individuals' experiences with parents are unable to sort of cope with kids' tricky emotions. And we call it the terrible twos for a reason. And it's interesting that we name it that. So when a child starts to have independent thought, desire, we term it as something that's not okay as opposed to recognising that this little being is actually experiencing their first sense of power. Mm. I get to decide. I am different from you and I have desires and can make choices that are different. So the stuff around shame I think is really important because shame is probably the trickiest emotion in that a little bit of it, which we all experience, can lead to a sense of remorse. Oh, okay, I got that wrong. It doesn't Mm. matter that I got that wrong. I got that wrong, so maybe I can fix that. Or, you know, it teaches us that human beings make mistakes. But when our parents respond in a particular way, it is incredibly negative. Or whether when our, I mean, you mentioned about parents managing kids' emotions. If adults can't manage their own emotions, then the emotions of a child will trigger often an enormous reaction in them. And so then you've got this huge battle going on, essentially, which is a battle for control. Kids get talked out of feeling their own emotions and shame increases. And then it just gets passed on to the next generation. And that I like the, um, I know I've heard it through Brene Brown, but I'm sure other people have said it too, that difference between guilt being I did something wrong and shame being there is something wrong with me. So that internalising stuff that, that children do. And I think as adults who struggle with emotional overwhelm, which we all do at times, and with trying to avoid tricky emotions, what we're aiming for ideally, I think, is being with emotion, being able to be with our tricky emotion, being with sadness or being with anger or being with distress. And I think about that the two-year-old, the terrible two, who doesn't have a parent who can be with their emotion, showing them that it's actually not dangerous and that it doesn't need to be suppressed and that it's, it's okay. And I'm imagining that the difference between having a parent who is trying to, um, whatever, appease maybe, come back to happiness um, or matching the anger perhaps and um, using fear then to control versus perhaps a parent who can just help with naming things. You know, I can, this is what I can see from the outside. You can, for a two-year-old, you know, I can see that you're really upset. I can see that your face is getting hot and red. You know, all of those great things, which is how we teach children the language of emotion that matches their internal experience, their physical experience and whatever else is going on, you know, there I'm just imagining two very different pathways for, you know, one response if it's repeated from a parent. Completely. Being able to sit with somebody's emotions too, I think it's impacted by your own ability to sit with your own. And that's where the problem lies because, again, I'm generalising, but I would say that very few of us of a particular age were parented by people who were connected with their emotional worlds. And therefore, the kind of parenting that we got was much more fear-based. It was much more control-based. It was much more manipulative. Do this or else. 
you know, that kind of rhetoric. Hopefully things are shifting the more we evolve. But I think even in, you know, as a parent, I I look back at some of the times where I feel like I haven't had great parenting moments because my own emotions have been triggered for whatever reason. And, you know, particularly I think when kids are young and you get this message, you know, we, we kind of think that our job is to mould our young person, to create something out of this little being that's come in empty. And I don't believe that's true. If, if I think back on some instances of my own parenting, I kind of go, hmm, that was a moment where I should have trusted my young person. They might have been 18 months or two or four to go, this is what they're telling me they need. I don't know. That's right. Uh, yeah. You know, as a parent, I feel like I'm supposed to know because I'm supposed to be the one in, in charge. But actually, there are times when they absolutely know what it is that they need. And for me to enforce my belief system on them is, I'm going to say this gently, but it, it, it can, can become abusive because I am asserting my will over theirs rather than stepping back and going, all right, what is it that you want? What is it that you need? Because we assume that they are, you know, I like the term little people because mm-hmm. I think that they, no, they're not fully formed, they're learning, but they have awareness, they have a consciousness. And I think as parents, our job is to go, all right, my my job is to provide a safe space for you to evolve, for you to, to be who you are, to work out who you are. And as soon as I start enforcing my own emotions on you, we have a problem. And even more passively, I think, as, you know, adults around children, when we don't express our emotion, we're modelling suppression, even if we're not necessarily trying to change or manipulate our children's emotional expression, if we're not showing this is how it's done, then there's no modelling and the implicit messaging is suppress it. I think that's a really important point. I, I, you know, I work a lot with clients who will say, never saw my parents cry. You know, sometimes saw anger and some saw lots of anger. If you don't, again, really understand your emotions really well, it is deflected anger. It's not anger at the source of the anger. And so it's not clean. Anger that is cleanly expressed can be a beautiful thing. It can be life-changing and empowering. And between two people, it can lead to greater intimacy. It's like I'm angry with that. I can express that and the other person can hear that you're angry and I can apologise, acknowledge, sit with that and you have a deepening of, of an emotion and a connection there. But what we often do... I'm angry, I get defensive, I want to start blaming and then we have something that where nobody even knows necessarily where it started and you've got all of your baggage coming in and and that's not clean anger, Mm. that's not clean emotion. So you're right, that's what happens when we suppress. And Yeah, and I think that that anger is a big one because it's it's really, you know, in in our society it's not acceptable and often it, it is expressed in ways that's not acceptable like violence. But, you know, my experience working in schools and working with, you know, little ones as little as five who are holding a lot of anger and knowing that our systems around children are often set up around punishment as a teacher. We wouldn't do that in any other way in schools. You don't use punishment to teach numeracy or literacy. But 
so often in schools around behaviour rather than doing the work that says, let's try and work out what happened here and do some restorative practices perhaps, but also let's work out for you, small angry person, what's going on? And um, I think some, I'm sure, I know some schools do it really well and some families do it really well, but often it's more about what happens after. So we're not tracing it back to an origin. We're following the anger to a consequence that is often punishment-based. And I know I've had lots of children be angry at me and sometimes angry at me for a reason, but often, you know, asking that question, are you, are you angry at me? No. Well, it feels like you are because you're yelling at me. You can just see that shift of like, oh, okay. And it all it dissipates. And then you can start to trace back, okay, so what are you angry? Where is it coming from? Yeah. And, and of course, it's nearly always hurt. And that's really important because as soon as you see that young person acknowledge, oh, that's what I'm feeling, they have the ability to be able to claim it and therefore move through it and understand it, which is, which is where the power of emotions lie. It is about our ability to be able to transcend, if you like, the constrictive ones and get a sense of why it was that we were feeling it. And placing that little gap, I think, between the self, who is doing the feeling, and the feeling. So not being, you know, not being the emotion, but actually being a, a self who's experiencing emotion. And that, again, is a really important point. Over the years, I've worked a lot with clients who will come in and go, I don't want to feel angry. I shouldn't feel angry. Angry is not okay. And we see it, as you said before, we see it. We see it in road rage. We see it as, but again, road rage is never, I'm really angry at the person who's making me five minutes lay. That's not where the anger comes from. It's a projection of it. And maybe it's safer to take that anger out on the person who's, you know, irritating you than it is to go home and say to your partner, I'm miserable in this situation, things have to change, I'm not sure I want to be here anymore, or to your job and go, I need to leave work because I'm hating my boss, whatever it happens to be that's the root cause. But because we get that message that anger is bad, we do suppress and we don't have the ability to therefore understand. So we have lots of, you know, lots of adults who go, I don't know what I'm feeling. Mm. I don't know what I'm feeling. I'm not supposed to feel that, so I want to suppress it. Mm -hmm. So therefore, I'm going to distance myself and not feel it. But in the doing of that, I don't shift beyond it. I can't move beyond it. So that example that you gave about that little person identifying is great. And that anger is, anger is a natural byproduct of trauma, of abuse, of feeling powerless. Absolutely. I've never met... A human being, I mean, oh, we all feel anger, but, but somebody who's been abused, there is a sense of rage in that and it's appropriate rage. Yeah. I mean, you're a writer, Beck, and you've written recently a book on trauma. You work a lot with kids, clearly. So how do you see the impact of trauma playing out emotionally? I think there are a lot of ways that it plays out, but to... Um, simplify, I think we see what we see is externalizes and internalizes a lot. And I think that anger and the, I was going to say displaced, but, and maybe that's the right word, I'm not sure, but for, for children, because we know so often um, when kids experience trauma and all kinds of trauma that can also be community trauma or the trauma of racism or poverty or living with 
adversity, but more often than not, it's related to the family and it's doubly not safe. So whatever's happening is not safe. And the fact that it's coming from the par- the parents or the family or the people close to you whose job it is to not just keep you safe, but keep you alive as a child, particularly a baby or an infant, it's so unsafe that you actually can't even acknowledge the danger is coming from those people, which does have to shift that anger and distress outside of the family. And I think that's at the root of a lot of the um, really difficult behaviours that we see at school. And that doesn't, sometimes it shifts, but it doesn't always just shift as you get older and more independent. It can take a really long time. So for the, I think we see a lot of externalising behaviours that are born of children, even unconsciously not able to accept that those charged with their safety and keeping them alive are also harming them. And the for, for children who internalise it and, and all the externalisers internalise a lot of stuff too, generally shame and sense of not, not having self-love and self-worth. But we also see kids who are just missing in action. You know, they're not present, they're dissociating or sometimes sleeping even, or, you know, the classic, oh, such a daydreamer, or away with the fairies. They're the kids you have to watch because what's going on there? What's yeah. going on that you've developed strategies that take you away from the present moment? I think your mentioning of shame there is really important because I think when we are raised by people, as you said, who are, and there may be lots of external factors, but who are actually doing us damage, that's when the shame reaches uh, a really destructive proportion within our psyche because the thing that we have to tell ourselves in that, I cannot, for my own survival, I cannot say my parents are a bad parent or they're doing a bad job. I have to actually say, it's me. I'm the problem because if I wasn't the problem, my parent who is my God, they are giving me life, they are looking after me, they are absolutely my survival. If I am to turn around and see them at, at that young age as being problematic, I don't believe I will survive. So I have to go, it's me, I'm the one who's screwed up, I'm the problem if I was different. And we take that into adulthood. Um, that's what I spend a lot of my time, to be honest, working with clients about. How do we shift that perception that, no, it's me, there is something fundamentally flawed with me because my caregivers were doing me so much damage that my experience with shame, which is where all those other things come from, self-hate, self-doubt, all of those, it was so enormous that I couldn't stay. And that's where you've got, I mean, the externalizers in some ways, they're all defence mechanisms. Your externalizers that gives them a little bit of a sense of power which makes them feel better than completely hopeless. And your kids who are distracted, that's survival too. Mm. 
it's like I'm not going to be here for the moment because where I am is too uncomfortable. So I am going to daydream. I'm going to imagine, hopefully imagine something nice, but I'm, I'm not going to be present because being present is too hard. So I develop a pattern of taking myself out of this situation because if I don't, the extent of what I'm feeling is way, way too big and my little system is on overload. But that's the message. There is something wrong with me fundamentally. I am flawed. Yeah. And for, for, for children who really have had that um, serious experience of interpersonal trauma, they, they go ahead and repeat that pattern, as we all do to some, some degree. <laughs> um, we repeat patterns that we've had in our childhood. But I think that's, um, that's some of the, the most difficult stuff to work with is that for for children who start to perhaps have a relationship with an adult like a teacher or someone um, at school or a coach or someone that starts to feel safe, it feels unsafe actually because it's so unfamiliar that then they potentially blow it up. And I think, you know, I've just seen that again and again and again and it takes such perseverance and commitment and unwavering care and love to be on the other side of that again and again and again and yeah. to, to stand strong. Yeah. And a, and a lot of young people and adults don't get that. So, you know, I think, I guess, coming back to emotion, like we, we play out the blueprint that was laid in childhood. But as we get older, we gain the insight to start to recognise those patterns or through therapy. So much of what therapy is, is recognising patterns totally. and perhaps pointing them out to our clients if they don't see them or working through them when they do and looking at what choices do you want to make around that? Yeah, I think that makes me think about anxiety, what you were saying before, because good feelings make us anxious. If we're not used to them, if we haven't had tenderness or we haven't had joy or we haven't had fun, then something, an emotion that's unprecedented makes us feel really anxious. We don't know how to sit with it. And so that's when we do the self-sabotaging. We come in and go, well, this is, this feels too good. I don't know how to cope with this. I'm going to mess it up so that I can take myself back to a um, a friend of mine many years ago used to use the term favourite bad feeling. Hmm. I don't like it. Yeah. It's not great, but I know it. Yeah. It, it's a safety place and so it's somewhere that I can return to when my anxiety is roused by something that feels out of the ordinary. And you're right, sometimes it's those feelings, that, that connection that suddenly feels so good. I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's that, you know, that's what our brains seek, familiarity and patterns. So, of course, we just keep going back over it and particularly when we're young and we don't have that the insight and the choice making that we that are is available to us and as adults familiarity over safety and you know that connection even 
often over safety, I would say too, like that connecting with the parent or the caregiver. Well, there's something about, and again, another emotion, but there's something about the predictability of something that is difficult that gives us a, a feeling of control. And I mean, I think control is always illusory, but nonetheless, we we try and focus on the things that we can control, whatever it is that we can control to give us some sense that we have some power in a situation. And emotions are one of those things Absolutely. that can make, make us feel out of control. So Absolutely. of course we try to control them in whatever whatever way is available to us. I want to introduce a quote here by Audre Lorde, American writer, philosopher, civil rights activist, poet, radical feminist, etc., etc. Our feelings are our most genuine paths to knowledge. And I think that's kind of the point. Emotions operate like a litmus paper, if you like. They're important because they tell us clearly how we are relating to our environment. They're not facts, but they give us information. So the fact that we feel an emotion is a fact, we're feeling it, it's not deniable. It doesn't mean that the emotion itself is rooted in fact, but it tells us how we are relating to our environment. And that information is really important because if we don't understand that, again, we can't move beyond that present place of feeling. We can get trapped in it, lost in it. Or lost trying to avoid it. Absolutely. So, you know, not to judge an emotion becomes really important. okay, I'm feeling that. I'm feeling jealous. I'm feeling envious. I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling joy. I'm feeling rapture. I'm feeling excited. I'm feeling despair. I'm feeling whatever it is. Okay, that's interesting. I don't have to see it as good or bad. That's what I'm feeling. You know, the expansive emotions we do identify as good because they feel good. Hmm. But the other ones give me information. If I won't look at it, I don't get access to that information and I therefore cannot move beyond it. Yeah, I I feel that that idea that feelings are not facts is so liberating actually but what they are is data absolutely that's that's yes what you're saying the information coming in and that idea of approaching whatever's coming in with non-judgment and curiosity is also really freeing and while it can feel good so we're saying yes some feelings are do feel better than others but it doesn't mean the feeling itself is a is better or worse or positive versus negative or whatever it's more information and we can bring our curiosity to it no matter how it's making us feel noticing it bringing curiosity to it and not trying to get rid of it and as soon as you acknowledge it actually it helps to be with it rather than to try to fight it or judge it Absolutely. And if you don't judge it, you'll look at it. If we are judging something as bad, we don't want to look at it. I don't want to see that awful thing that's buried there. I don't want to see that, you know, nasty part of myself that I would like to eradicate and cut out. But if I don't judge it, I just go, okay, that's where I am today. You know, feeling angry doesn't make me an angry person. It just means that today I'm feeling angry. But if I don't judge it, if I look at it, I can work out why I'm feeling angry and I can maybe trace it or maybe I can deal with it. Maybe I can have the conversation or make the change that I need to change to move beyond it. And I think also just accepting that having the full range of emotions is part of the human condition. That idea that we should be aiming for 100% happy is just so false So of course, of course we feel all the feelings and that as you started the episode by saying, that's 
That's being human. The range of emotions is important. And I think the more grasp we have on them, we can more move more effectively to those more expansive emotions. But also sometimes what we want to do is is kind of flatline. I kind of don't want to feel, you know, if we're not prepared to feel the sad ones, we can't actually feel the height of the expansive ones. So we narrow our range. And sometimes I will say to clients, that's flatline, that's that's not being alive. So embracing all of those becomes really important. That's, yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing about suppression. You can't just suppress the tricky emotions. They all get suppressed or you feel them all. So I think we've come to the end of our time. There is clearly a lot more to speak about. Maybe we need an emotions part two. (laughs) Maybe we do need an emotions part two. Um, Thanks for listening and see you next time. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Soulful Insights. Follow us for more content and feel free to reach out and let us know if there's anything you'd like to hear on a future episode.